Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
Before we start today's episode, I wanna tell you about a new project that we've launched called unmistakableposters.com. Every month, we'll be shipping a brand new poster. If you love the artwork from our brand, now you can have some of it hanging in your studio or your office. Our first poster is the 15 principles of an unmistakable standard. You can learn more and order your copy at unmistakableposters.com. Now, let's get into the episode. As an NYU undergraduate, Matan Grafell had aspirations of a career in finance, but getting rejected from over 100 jobs drastically altered the course of his career, ultimately leading to the launch of the Y Combinator startup one month. Matan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Sherney. Yeah. So I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, who uh, was a guest here. And when she told me about the work that you're doing around accelerated learning and the startup that you're working on, I thought Mm -hmm. this is highly, highly relevant to anybody who's making anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I figured we had to get you on the show. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, uh, and how that has brought you to the work that you're doing in the world today? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's been such a long and crazy journey. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of different things that I think were important. But um, I'll, I'll start with I'll start with college, uh, because, you know, I'm actually 26 years old, I'm, I'm sort of four years out of college. And, uh, and I started, I went to NYU in New York City, and I started studying finance. Because in high school, it was just like was playing around with investing a little bit of like money in stocks. And so I thought business would be like the thing for me. That's where I thought I'd make a lot of money. Um, and it was, uh, it was, you know, it was fine. Like I found myself doing well in all the classes, but I really didn't enjoy the actual, I guess maybe culture is the word. Like I just didn't like talking about stocks with like people over dinner. You know, it just like, it bored me or it was... And also you see all these people who are successful in that career and none of them are, are like happy with their lives. You know, like I kept talking to, for me, I try to model the people that I like, I admire. I try to find people who are happy and kind of like, you know, pick bits of their life and try to follow what they did. And, and all of the people who were successful in finance that I talked to, who had become like managing directors at like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever, like very few of them were super happy and fulfilled with what they were doing. And, uh, and to me, that was a huge red flag that like everyone around me was ignoring. Um, and uh, it actually, a friend of mine kind of inspired me to, to make this shift. Uh, he was studying economics and philosophy as a double major. And so I realized that in my degree, I could actually take these 40 elective credits that they gave you and fill those up with a philosophy degree, basically. So I decided to do a double major in finance and philosophy, um, which was amazing. I mean, thinking about stuff in a totally different way. Uh, It definitely didn't help me get a job coming out of college, though. I actually graduated in 2010, and it was a time when, uh, when you know, the financial industry was not doing so well. Um, but I also think there's something more than that. Like I, I applied to something like a hundred jobs my senior year of college. Uh, I, I remember I had a, a, like an Excel spreadsheet of every single one, and I got rejected from every single job that I applied to, which was really tough for me. Like it, it, it made me. It made me really question my self-worth. I, I did fine in school, right? So I couldn't really even blame it on like bad grades or anything. It was almost something about me personally. Uh, and I kept seeing people around me getting these jobs, you know, getting these kind of dream, you know, positions in investment banking at Morgan Stanley or Goldman or wherever it was. And, and these are people who like, you know, I, I always felt were like less qualified than me. I think maybe that's like a really egotistical way to put it. But like, I was just wondering like, well, you know, what do these people have that I don't have? Um, so eventually I kind of got over it. I was certainly still like desperate to, to find some, some way to make money. Um, and so, uh, so after graduating, I ended up uh, asking my cousin, actually, who runs a sales team at, uh, at Condé Nast Publishing, I asked him if he would give me a job as a salesperson, and he said no. <laughs> he said they actually don't hire entry-level salespeople, but he, he, uh, he actually said, well, my friend works at this startup, and you should talk to him. And so he introduced me to this startup in New York City. It was called App Savvy, and they were doing advertising like uh, technology. They were putting brands inside of social games. 
I didn't know anything about that. And I think it's, it's it, the whole world of advertising is like really confusing and totally foreign to people at first. Um, and this company, the only position that they had open was like marketing. You know, they, I interviewed with the CEO. It was, uh, it was a total like 180 from what I was expecting that I'd be doing in investment banking with like, you know, the, the culture of models and bottles and making like hundreds of thousands your first year out of college. And, you know, like, you know, just the, the crazy sort of debauchery that they depicted that I was always expecting going to working at a startup uh, with like a bunch of 20 year olds who were just like really committed, but getting, getting paid, honestly, peanuts compared to what my friends were making. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really know anything about marketing, but I guess at the time they were just like, we like you and, and, you know, we need someone to do newsletters and we need someone to do sort of whatever, like random odds and ends, just different ideas that they had had. Uh, so I was like, yes, hire me and I will learn how to do all that stuff. Like, don't worry about it. And, uh, and so because I really wanted to get good at that and, Going into it, I had this this um, I had this sort of like mentality that I wanted to become a director, like a director level person within a year. And I think you know I think that was probably a little bit aggressive. I remember telling I remember telling my boss that that like my intention was to become director of marketing within a year, and uh, and he laughed because he was like this you know thirty five year old who had been doing this stuff his entire life and was used to this. You know, like the corporate background where it takes you two years to get into like the, you know, senior level. I was marketing coordinator at the time. So it was like, you know, marketing manager and then director of marketing. I kind of wanted to, to skip all of that because I knew that I was smart and I knew that like I could get good at this. And, and so I, I just kind of wanted to prove myself and, and kind of be the exception. Um, I don't know like where that drive comes from, but like I've always sort of felt like there's, you know, you don't have to get stuck doing the same path as everyone else does because, you know, sometimes you can find little tricks and shortcuts or just work extra hard and, and get somewhere faster. Uh, so that's when I, it was in that role where I first discovered some of the, like, the online learning tools uh, that were really young at that time. Um, there was General Assembly in New York City, which is a, it was a co-working space, but they were also offering, like, night classes one day a week. And so a friend, friend told me about that and I started taking like marketing for startups classes and advertising 101 classes and, uh, and, uh, and just bring, bringing everything, just sucking it up like a sponge and bringing it back with me to this role and you know, keeping the stuff that worked and throwing out the stuff that didn't work. And it was just like, just surrounding myself with all these resources. And I think that first, that first year, like I, I, I like to say that first year I was there, I, probably learned more than I did in the entire four years in college beforehand. Um, and a lot of it was the fact that like, it wasn't just conceptual. It was, it was, you know, this company on the line. Um, we ended up, I ended up after a year and a half managing a marketing budget of about half a million dollars. Uh, we, I organized my first like full conference with over 150 brands from around the world uh, we won a Guinness World Record for one of the campaigns that we did, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed like get learning this new thing, learning it through General Assembly, through Skillshare, through Udemy, through iTunes University, just like, all these resources that were available that like very few people knew about, and also connecting with the the teachers there. That was a huge benefit of a lot of these classes for me was that they were taught by like seasoned professionals who were often doing the job still. They weren't like professors who were teaching full time. And so I, I, would, I would walk up to them afterwards and uh, get their information and, and ask them out to lunch and, and sort of pick their brains. And, uh, and a lot of those are still mentors to this day. Actually, one of them was, a, was our first investor in this company that I started. Um, so after about a year and a half of doing this marketing thing, it, uh, you know, it sort of, it stopped being a challenge. It started being that I, I realized that more, it was more of the same that was expected of me. You know, looking back at the year and a half before, there was all of this new stuff that I'd done. And then looking forward on the year and coming up with projective, pro, uh, projections, 
I think it was about the you know end of the year like projection time. What they wanted from me was you know we did one conference, let's do four this year. We we won these awards, let's win more next year. Let's like just do more of the same. And to me, that felt like um, that just that just felt kind of like stagnation because after learning all this stuff the year before, I didn't see anything that I'd be learning moving forward. And on top of that, I was. I, was, I mean, I'd really like, I mean, I started doing a lot for the company and it didn't, it was never really appreciated. I think there was always this aspect of like, um, I don't know if the word is ageism, but because they looked at me and, and my age, even within the startup, they, the mentality was, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be director of marketing when you've been doing this for a few years, which always, it seemed arbitrary to me. Because it was like, I'm already doing the role of this thing, uh, but they just didn't, they sort of didn't want to appreciate it for that. Um, and, uh, and I also, at that point, read uh, Four Hour Workweek, which I've talked to a lot of people about since. And it seems like Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Workweek was like the starting point for a, a lot of different entrepreneurial uh, careers. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure he realizes how many it was. Um, so, so I, I sort of I fell in love with this idea reading that book of of constantly learning, which I was already doing a bit of, but like just dedicating the rest of your life to learning a new thing and uh, and traveling, you know, to a new place every six months. And the idea of passive income, which uh, which sounds really nice, it, it didn't end up becoming that. Um, but when I quit that job, um, which you know was a scary moment, but. Uh, but I, I quit it, and I had a few different ideas for companies I wanted to start. Uh, there was a brain supplement that I created, which like, actually was literally what Tim Ferriss did. Um, there was a strategy guide book that I was testing out for Farmville, and there was uh, there was this software like idea that I came up with, uh, which I thought was actually like a really great idea. I just didn't actually know how to build it. You know, I I had. I, I knew what it was, but I, I, there was something stopping me, like in the way of me being able to execute it. Um, so for a while, I, I went around to different events, trying to find some developer, trying to bring on like a technical co-founder who could build it for me, and uh, and I couldn't. I, I, it was very frustrating. Uh, so I, looking back at that, looking back at like wasting three months trying to find someone to do this thing for me and, and realizing like I hadn't actually achieved progress in like a number of months on any of this stuff. I, uh, I was having lunch with a friend of mine named uh, John who, who told me about actually his experience learning how to code. Like he had taught himself how to code in high school. And so he'd said like, you are going to have to learn how to do this thing because no one else is going to, is going to help you know, it happened. Like, no one cares about your idea but you. So if you're not going to make it happen, it's not going to happen. And I think that's when I realized, like, yeah, I would, I would actually have to learn how to do this thing, which never really seemed like an option to me before for some reason. Uh, so that unlocked this drive to learn how to code. But because uh, I didn't really want to take, like, an entire year to learn that. I also couldn't afford to do that. I hadn't really saved up much money. I ended up packing up my bags and moving to San Francisco for one month to learn to code. That was like my goal was I'm going to give myself a month, go through all of these different resources that, that, uh, that John had, had written down for me. Uh, I'm going to try to go through them as fast as possible and, uh, and have an actual working product by the end of it. Um, and and I, I managed to do that. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing experience. It was just when I look back at my life, I think that month had some of like the highest highs and lowest lows that I'd ever felt. Uh, there was one time where I like I, I tried to install like upgrade my version of, of Ruby and it just broke everything on my computer for like two days. So for two days, I just from like nine to five, I was just trying to figure out what the hell was going on and nothing was working. And it was it was like you almost I was sweating because I felt like I had single-handedly broken something and I had no idea what it was and I had no idea how I would find the answer. But when I did finally fix it after two days of like struggling, it was just this amazing high. You know, it was like, uh, 
It felt like a drug or something. Um, and just coding was this totally new experience to me where it, there, there are just many moments of that. Like it's always something is broken and then you fix it and you're flying high and then there's that next you know, thing that you run up against and then it's like this really low low again. Um, so I ended up building this prototype and uh, unfortunately, there w- it did turn out there wasn't really a market for it. People, you know, it, it was hard to actually connect with customers. But from that experience, I ended up going back to New York and, uh, and friends of mine started asking me how I learned how to code because I had a lot of other friends that had ideas that were like, maybe business majors in college, and they couldn't find technical co-founders. And, and so uh, initially I started, uh, it started as actually a series of blog posts where I just, uh, I, I sort of went through my thinking process about why I decided to learn how to code and what the path that I found was and what the resources that I found were and like why I chose Ruby on Rails as a programming language. And those, out of those three blog posts, came a class that I started teaching at General Assembly. And the class just really hit on something that I I think people were really curious about. Maybe it was just like timely, right? This whole learn to code movement, which started to take off in the last few years. So this class, uh, you know, it went from first like 20 students to 30 to 40, and it was selling out week after week. And, uh, and I mean, the whole, I never thought I would be teaching, but the whole teaching experience started to become really addictive to me. I remember it was like super nerve wracking the first day where they, you know, there's this classroom full of people and everyone was older than me. It was all like people in their 30s, people in their 40s who, uh, who were maybe like not satisfied with their careers or had a startup that they wanted to start. They were all kind of like looking for this answer. And I, I was, you know, I really doubted whether I could actually provide that answer. I was just like a, four, a 24-year-old kid, right? And I wasn't a coder per se. I had just like a month before started on my own path. And, uh, and so part of me always felt like I was like, you know, like an imposter. You hear about imposter syndrome with entrepreneurs, but I kind of felt that way. Um, but at the same time, there was a moment during the, the first class where once you push through that like embarrassment or that fear uh, or you know, you're, you're speaking in front of the room and everyone's sort of like skeptical, like what does this person actually have to offer to me, where, where it f- a, a, a switch flips and you could see it, like people physically change the way that their bodies look from like, you know, going from crossed arms to, to open and, and they would actually start asking questions because they actually they actually care and they realize that like, maybe you know a little bit of something that would be useful to them. And then they ask questions about their ideas. And I think I fell in love with that moment. So I started you know, teaching that and I started teaching more classes. I started teaching about growth hacking, which was this new term that I had heard come out of like Silicon Valley. And it was kind of this marketer coder hybrid, you know, like a coder responsible for getting more users for a product. And because I had this background in marketing, but also had just learned how to code, it was something that I felt like I could speak to. So I started teaching about that. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of, I'll skip through some of the stuff, but uh, I ended up turn, creating a Skillshare class back when Skillshare was first doing online classes. And uh, I never really expected it to be very big. I sort of thought if I could fit 40, person in a ro- 40 people in a room, well, maybe I could teach 100 people in an online class, make a little bit of extra money and reach a little bit more people. Um, and so that was, my goal was to get, like, to teach this 100-person online class. And, uh, and that first class that we set up ended up having 2,000 students. It was it, it totally... You know, hit me by surprise. I think it hit Skillshare by surprise. They had never had a class that was bigger than 200 students. Um, and, and that was the day, like, literally everything changed. I, I was probably actually running out of money at that point. I was definitely running out of money. I remember I had $200 left in my checking account, and I knew that that next week, if, if something didn't come in, like, I would have to find a job. And I went to, uh, to one of my sort of advisors, mentors at the time, who was one of my first teachers, and, and asked him, like, do you have any work that I could do for you? Because I really need it. And, and that next week, the Skillshare class was just super successful. And it suddenly had made like $40,000 in revenue. 
And I was like, oh my God. Um, so, and then I got nervous about the class, of course. I, I had these, I, of course I pitched the class before I even had any of the curriculum like developed. Uh, and, and then when I actually recorded it, I only got about halfway through the recording of the stuff. And, and I, I always thought that people would like call me out as being a fraud because I didn't even have the whole curriculum done. It was supposed to be a month. The class was called how to teach yourself to code one month rails. And I only really did like two weeks worth of content. And so I, I kind of like padded it with like the last week being go off and like explore and, and do your own project and, and sort of extended the rest of the week. Um, but I, you know, I, I thought to myself, like, if I thought that this class would be okay for like a 40 person class, then why am I suddenly doubting myself now that it's like a 2000 person class? Uh, plus it, it, there was so much going on. I didn't even have the time to redo it. So I decided to just run with it and see what happened. And people, people loved it. Like the response was incredible. You know, the, the response, I started getting emails from people about like, how they had tried to learn how to code before and, uh, and nothing had ever worked and they were frustrated with all the resources. And I, did, I didn't just create a class to create another class. I created it because in my own experience of going through these things, they were all so convoluted or like none of them spoke to me as a beginner. None of them spoke to, my, to what I wanted to learn. Like I actually wanted to build something. And I actually had all these questions that none of these resources answered because they were all written as if you already like knew this stuff. Um, there's uh, there's this idea that I've sort of become obsessed with, which is like the internalization of knowledge. And as an expert, you often learn all of these things that like you didn't know when you were first starting out and you learn them and, and because they become second nature, you forget that they're even things that you learned in the first place. And so when you then have to teach beginners, uh, you, you skip over some of the most important stuff because you have this idea of like the right way to teach it, but it's very hard for you to, uh, to, to sort of externalize these processes that have for you have become second nature. And so because I wasn't an expert, I think I actually maybe was like better suited for teaching beginners how to do this stuff. Like I remembered what it was like for me still to not know this stuff. Um, and so the first class was like showing people how to actually build Pinterest from scratch. And the, the feedback, like the emails as they kept flowing in were like, you know, this is amazing. Like I, people told me that they, uh, that they were able to like leave their jobs and get jobs as like designers. A lot of people have gone on to become developers and, and make twice their salary or, or start their startups or, or do whatever that was like their dream. And, um, and at least that spoke to me really, really strongly because I've always felt like people shouldn't, people should, shouldn't blame the world around them for not letting them do the things that they really want to do. Like there are so many people going around saying, uh, you know, if only my boss appreciated me more or if only I was getting paid more, then I could, you know, live the life I really wanted to live. Or like, I will write that book when I retire, you know, but like, those are all just internal. Like those are like these limiting beliefs, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, for a lot of I, that, just always bothered me. So that was, I think, another big reason why I created the class because I wanted people to realize, like, no, this is this is up to you. And if and if you're complaining that you can't build your company because you can't find a developer, then you know it's really never going to happen. So you have to figure this out on your own. Um, then, so that ended up, actually in total, it ended up having 6,000 people because I ran that class twice. And then uh, I applied to Y Combinator with that and Y Combinator accepted me, which was a crazy experience because I had applied before and gotten rejected for you know, the first time around when I first learned how to code. And, uh, and I went through Y Combinator with built up this team. And from there, it, the question, the next obvious question was like, well, if we could teach Ruby on Rails in a month, what else can we teach in a month? So the company kind of shifted this idea, and which is where the name come from, came from, one month. And uh, we've developed, at, at this point, six classes. Mm -hmm. One month Rails, one month HTML and CSS, uh, one month iOS 
for app development. And then we started looking outside of just coding to like one month growth hacking, which is kind of like digital online marketing with like a bit of a technical bent. And, uh, and now we're even you know, expanding further. We were, we were thinking of like one month content marketing, one month sales, like possibly one month happiness. Mm-hmm. Like we, I, I really think a lot about you know, how can you get there faster? How can you prove people wrong? Yeah. Right, because there's so many people who just take that standard path. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that sort of gets me to 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 present day. We we raised a little bit of funding to help support the team. We're here in New York City. There are nine of us now, and uh, and oh, man, in the last like year and a half, so much has changed. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. All right, so there's there's a ton of stuff here. Uh, yeah. And I want to go back to the very beginning. Sure. Uh, starting with philosophy. Yeah. And how having that background in philosophy has influenced and shaped, uh, you know, your own worldview and the way you've navigated this entire path and journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much. Like, um, I... I used to try to, to explain to people our teaching philosophy through this philosopher named Wittgenstein, which I, is a point I think uh, I've stopped doing because it it's, it's like, sounds elitist and it goes over people's heads. But Wittgenstein is one of my favorite philosophers. And he's this guy who totally like, uh, he, I mean, he's very modern, right? Like uh, within the last hundred years. And he sort of, he came in without too much background in classic philosophy. And he, he just sort of turned everything upside down. Um, but he's really, really hard to read. And in philosophy, they say, actually, like, uh, 
good philosophy is good despite being badly written and despite being convoluted, not because of it, which is, you know, uh, the point is be simple in your writing, be clear in your writing. You could still write good philosophy. But in this case, Wittgenstein is really dense and really hard to read. And, uh, and so I, I used to struggle like getting even through this, like you would read a paragraph and then by the end of it, you, you think you understand, but, but you actually have totally forgotten the point of what he's trying to make. And so uh, one of my teachers told me that like the way that you should approach Wittgenstein is to skim the entire essay up front, that you just like browse the whole thing and not really try to try to understand exactly what he's trying to do, but just try to get a sense of where he's going with this thing. And, uh, and then once you, once you know where he's going, when you go back to the beginning and you start reading it, it all starts to make a little bit more sense. Cause you're not like, you're not trying to understand what he's saying and also trying to figure out where he's going it, going with it. Um, and to me with coding, that always seemed like the biggest problem for people, which is like all these resources out there, you just dive right into like these fundamentals, the, the, the core concepts of coding things about like variables and strings and arrays and and like these building blocks that you're supposed to eventually build up into these these grand complex structures but i get so frustrated as a beginner because i don't understand like why are we learning this stuff you know like what am i going to be able to do with it and you can only keep someone's interest for so long with this boring fundamental building block stuff before eventually they just give up and that's in education in general, I think that's the biggest shame. That's how we teach math today, right? That's how we teach most topics, where you start with addition, and then you understand addition, and you and you you know move on to multiplication, and then you move on to like you move on to calculus, and you move. It's just these layers upon layers. But at a certain point, you know, a kid always asks the teacher, like raises his hand, he's like, "Hey, teacher, why do I need to know this stuff?" And the bad teachers or most teachers just say like, trust me, this will be useful later, right? And, and at a certain point, most people just decide, well, actually, this is not really useful, which is why you know, not everyone's a mathematician. And so it's just kind of where you end there uh, kind of decides your relationship with that topic for the rest of your life, which is why a lot of people just kind of give up in like third grade. And then for the rest of their life, they have this belief that they're just not math people. Right, or they're just not sciencey people. Like uh, you know, I'm just not good at math or whatever. Um, and a lot of those people actually don't think that they can learn how to code. I hear people all the time tell me, you know, I've always wanted to learn how to code, but I'm not really like a math person. I'm not good at math, so you know, I just I don't think I'd be good at this thing. Um, my ideal approach would be like, let's dive into actually using this stuff. Let's dive into like so real life situations because. Once, it, once something is actually useful to you, you're much more interested in learning it. It's like going to a, this is why immersion learning with language works so well. It's like going to a new country and suddenly you have to learn the language because you're like going to starve otherwise, you know, if you don't know how to order pizza. Uh, and suddenly you're like, oh my God, that's how you say that thing. Yes. I like, you unlock a whole part of the world for you. You make yourself happier. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, that's, I mean, those are some of the reasons why I think education's broken, and, and that's some of the thing we try to fix. Like, I assume people are lazy. I assume people, uh, people get distracted easily. And so these courses that we create, you know, take that in mind. And we actually have people, like, starting to build their project on the first day, right on day one, so they can see the results of this stuff. Amazing. Uh, so, you know, one other thing that really interested me is the fact that you made this spreadsheet of a hundred jobs and you got rejected yeah. from all of them and yeah. to deal with that sort of self-worth issue that you're talking about. I want to, I want to dig deeper into that a little bit, just so I can understand yeah. how you sort of separated your self-worth from the circumstances of your life in that moment, because it seems that that has been critical through this entire journey. It's, I think that your self-worth is often really, I mean, people compare themselves to everyone around them. It's like a, almost this unconscious thing, right? If you surround yourself with a certain set of people, you're going to be comparing your, yourself and, and like what you achieve against what they achieve. And so when I was in this you know, finance program and when everyone around me was you know, getting that, that amazing job at, at you know, that amazing company, 
And in my entire life there, like everyone thinks that they're special. So as a freshman, I remember thinking like, yeah, I'm going to get that job at Goldman Sachs. That's not a problem. Like, um, it's kind of like how everyone thinks they're going to be a millionaire, you know, by the time they're like 25 or 30 years old. And then when they don't get there, it's like, well, like what's wrong with me? Right. Uh, it's just that contrast between expectations and what you get. And I think it helped. It definitely helped partially that I had this, you know, the philosophy, like I wasn't just purely doing the finance thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it was really, it was, it was quite existential. And looking back at it now, it seems, not only does it seem silly, it actually seems like amazing that it happened that way because a lot of my friends who ended up doing finance have since left finance because uh, it, it stopped, you know, I think actually it stopped being culturally sexy, right? There was the whole Occupy Wall Street thing and people really started looking down on, on people working in finance. And, and so people whose parents had been pushing them to, to get a great job in finance their whole life, like maybe their parents weren't pushing them as hard to do it because like, it, you know, their friends were starting to judge them for it. So people ended up going from these amazing jobs to like arguably less good jobs, but, but they were happier because of it, because they weren't working 100 hours a week, which was kind of like, you know, that's what you were supposed to be doing. Uh, you're supposed to give everything to this. And, and people, people in that program, I don't think it's healthy, really, but they value their contribution to the world in terms of how much money they make, yeah. right? Like, they measure value. And so they say, they think, if I can become a millionaire, it means that I've contributed, like, a million dollars worth of value to the world, mm -hmm. which is certainly debatable. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of those feelings changed until time passed and I found myself in a, in a different situation with you know, people who were much happier. So it worked out for the best. So but, I, mean, I, I wish I could say I, w I had some insight or something, but it, it literally was just I couldn't get a job doing this. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, that's pretty normal, right? You, you run up against roadblocks yeah. and obstacles and obstacles end up becoming something that you know, opens uh, another path entirely, which I think makes a perfect setup for my next question uh, before sure. we get into sort of the Y Combinator deal is that, I mean, to me, sure. it seems like one of the things that you have a real eye for is this ability to see opportunity where it doesn't seem like there is any, you know, you fail at uh, mm. creating a prototype for something, it doesn't resonate with the market and that leads you into a Y Combinator startup, which mm. is mm -hmm. probably most mm -hmm. founders dreams. So, uh, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in, in hearing, you know, how do we cultivate that uh, in our own work when we run up against obstacles and roadblocks? So, man, that's a good question. I think, I think there's two parts of it. Uh, one is I try to put myself in situations where I have the potential to, to have a lot of different opportunities. Like for all of the, the things that work out, there's, there's like at least a thousand that didn't work out. And and, uh, and you don't even really recognize it after a while. Like, you know, it started with just, just getting a lot of coffee with people in New York City, just picking a lot of people's brains and trying a lot of things, right? Like I actually, you know, I mentioned when I quit my job, I had these three different ideas of companies and I didn't, I didn't know which one of them would work out. And I honestly didn't know that the class would be as successful as it was. I think that was just being in the right place at the right time. Um, and even in a lot of those cases, I, I didn't even realize I had hit opportunity until much later. I think, I think that's the case for a lot of people. Like when this class was at General Assembly and it, it started selling out week after week of 40 people, I still taught that class for about eight months before I ever had the idea to teach it as an online class. And I was, it was just a way to make money on the side while I was pursuing these other things that like failed. Uh, and it, there was the one moment where I kind of just looked, like looked back and thought, man, I'm such an idiot. I have this class that has people that are coming to it. They're paying me money. In some cases, they were coming up to me afterwards and saying, like, I want you to teach the follow-up class. I actually want to learn this stuff from you. And I would just go like, yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. Like, maybe I'll do that when I have the time. Uh, but I had just ignored it for so long that it, it you know, I just eventually I couldn't really stop. I couldn't really ignore it. Like I had to identify it. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's, I think it's a lot of, I think about it as like designing your life around serendipity, mm -hmm. right? Like 
people talk about those once in a lifetime opportunities. And when you look at really successful people, you see the string of really unlikely series of events that happen. You yeah. know, it's like that one random thing and that other random thing. And it's easy to look at that from the outside and to say, man, that person's lucky. Like they're so lucky. And I wish that I got those lucky breaks. But what you don't see is the, the thousands of other, you know, breaks that didn't happen for them, these situations they put themselves in. I think of it as like setting thousands of tiny little serendipity bombs mm -hmm. and, and like 999 of them, you know, will just, the fuse will go out before anything happens. Um, and so it's just about being there and ready for the one, the one that does work out. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I think the other thing is just, you know, self-improvement is so important for me. And, and I, try to think more long-term. And so if, if some decision is going to make me better in general, which coding was definitely one of those things, you know, I, I didn't know if that would be useful immediately, but I just knew if I learned this thing, well, it, like five years from now or 10 years from now, I'll know something new. It'll make me a more valuable person. Mm -hmm. uh, like how do, I, how do I learn things that are not going to pay off necessarily tomorrow, but like maybe a year from now or maybe 10 years from now? Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, sure. First, you know, I, I want to hear about the Y Combinator experience in depth mm -hmm. from the perspective of a founder, because I mean, I think that, you know, we, we can read about it endlessly. There's a thousand blog posts on it, you know, all over the web from founders who've been through it. But yeah. to actually hear it uh, in an interview form, I think would be really interesting. And I, I'm just really mm -hmm. curious about the whole process and experience and, and how that has altered um and shaped the way you do things and and the way you show up in the world and uh you know the way uh you are as a founder today because mm -hmm. of it yeah absolutely um you know i i think i could kind of cleanly divide my life into before y combinator and after y combinator it's it's totally different and things have certainly accelerated since then uh so they call y combinator an accelerator for a reason i mean you're it's supposed to bring in startups and then sort of spit them out at like a much more advanced stage where you you kind of grow the equivalent of like three years worth of time within three months uh for me going into it i didn't i didn't really know all of that stuff i didn't i don't think i really understood it i didn't know what the structure was honestly to me it was um it was in, on one hand like validation like you know it's like applying to harvard and getting in like you want there's an ego to it. Like you want that validation. I also thought, uh, well, if I'm a Y Combinator startup, it'll be easier to attract good talent. You know, it'll be easy for easier to, to get press about us. It'll be easier to, to raise money. And so uh, it's, you know, you make, you're more likely to make the company succeed. So from the rational perspective, yeah, it makes sense. Um, but, uh, but going into it, when I first got there, like they did this kickoff session and, and uh, I got there, I, I brought in a co-founder into Y Combinator, who is my co-founder uh, to this day, once I got accepted. And I remember the two of us sort of showing up and like asking, okay, so like, where are the sessions? Like, where, where, where do I go on Monday morning? And like, what's the plan? And they're like, no, there is nothing. There's no, you know, you're not showing up for school or anything. There are no, there are no lectures. It's just, you're here. We're going to give you about $20,000, which is going to, help you rent a, a room and it's going to help you basically pay for food, but not much else and like a car. And, uh, and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be working on your company like for the entirety of the time that you're here. And the, the only, the only like formal part of Y Combinator, there were three things. There was, uh, there was a weekly dinner that happened on Tuesday nights and it was then where everyone came to the space. I thought it was like a co-working space initially, but, but no one worked out of there. You weren't actually allowed to. It was only on Tuesday nights where all the companies in the batch came in. There were about 60 in my batch. Everyone showed up. They, uh, we ate this, like, this kind of sludge food. It was always like a crock pot with rice and then like some sort of stew. Um, like really economical, right? But not, really nothing fancy. Uh, and you would then... you would you know, you reconnect with the other founders. It was actually really needed because you'd spend the last seven days literally working by yourself in like your room, in your apartment or your house. So you kind of took this opportunity to socialize a little bit. And then they would invite uh, 
an amazing speaker. They had great connections. They brought in Mike Bloomberg or uh, Jerry Yang, who founded Yahoo, or Mark Zuckerberg, Ron Conway from SV Angel, um, Ben Silverman, who started uh, Pinterest. They just brought in some of the most am amazing founders who had incredible stories. It, it was mostly just stories. They talk a lot, you know, they, they build it up as this thing where it's like totally off the records, right? And, and admittedly, you're not allowed to tweet about it or you're not really supposed to share it with other people. So there's a more of a level of openness. But at the same time, it was much less about like sharing business secrets and much more about hearing the story of someone who, who triumphed against all odds. You know, and these people had been through equally hard, if not harder, situations than you were in. And so I just, week after week, left Tuesday nights just feeling totally re-energized and just feeling like, man, I just want to go back to work immediately. And I think those weekly dinners just literally served to, like, to, to motivate you through the entire program to not burn out, mm -hmm. and just barely even, because most people burn out by the end. Um, but then on top of those dinners, there was a, uh, like, you could do office hours, which uh, you could pick office hours with any of the partners. They have amazing partners on board. They had the CEO of Groupon, Andrew Mason. They have Andrew, uh, Paul Buchheit, who invented Gmail and, and also created the, the Google uh, motto of don't be evil. You know, they have, uh, they just have really brilliant people as partners, but that's kind of optional. Like you don't have to meet with partners if you don't want to. Uh, there's like a weekly group check-in, which they started playing around with. And then there's demo day at the end. And you, at demo day, it's kind of a misnomer. You only have two and a half minutes on stage in front of a room full of investors to talk about your company. Wow. And that's, and that's it. <laughs> right. Uh, and yet it's so simple but it's also so powerful. I think, I think what they identified is that there's power through in simplicity. Uh -huh. It's a really engineering kind of approach where it's like you're trying to optimize for this thing, this two and a half minute thing at the end, a demo day, and it's uh, it's so constrained that like you don't have much to worry about. All you're trying to do up to that point is grow, and that's the that's the number one question on everyone's mind throughout the entire program is. How much are you growing? Every time you met with a partner, it was, how much did you grow last week? There was this sort of unspoken rule that you want to grow at least 7% a week, week over week. Hmm. And so if you can do that, if you can grow 7% every week while you're there, and the best companies you know, grew 10% or 15% or 20% a week, but if you can just maintain 7%, then you end up at demo day with this beautiful looking like growth curve, and that's what the investors wanted to see. You know, and then you could do the funding and then sort of, I guess there was always this assumption that if you got funding, like the rest would be fine, which it, it like, there's really a lot more than that. But, uh, but all of the decisions that you make while you're there come from this question of what's going to get me growth. Hmm. And it, it, it's super simplifying. It's just like, should we hire this person? Well, is it going to help you grow this week? Should we redo the homepage? Is that going to help you grow 7% or not? Uh, so I think that's, you know, I think that was what was special about it. So, you know, it, it sounds to me like uh, it's almost a, a cultural illusion in uh, Silicon Valley or in the startup world that getting into Y Combinator pretty much sets you up for life and it's all smooth sailing from there. <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no. Like, there's certainly kind of a mafia. Um, they, they hook you up with like a TechCrunch article to help you launch while you're there. So mm -hmm. they have that relationship built. They have relationships with good investors. Um, I think a lot of the value there is, is they kind of have reshifted the balance between entrepreneurs and, and the VCs, which is, it used to be like, well, you're the startup and you're looking for money. And so you're pitching to the people who have money. You don't have much power in that situation. You know, they, they, they make the rules. They decide how much they want to invest because like you're going to die if you don't get the money. Right. Uh, but, but then Y Combinator turns it kind of into like a bit more of a union, uh, which is to say like, if a, if a, if a venture fund treats you badly, if they tell you they're going to invest and then they don't invest, that's like a, a black mark. And actually, uh, you can get blacklisted from investing in Y Combinator companies. If you do that, funds have done that before. And now like all of the YC companies are off limits for them. So 
companies, funds have started to realize that. And so when, when they hear that you're a Y Combinator company, the tone of the conversation changes because they know that there's, you know, you have sort of the weight of this entire thing behind you. Um, it also generally, there's like a little bit of a valuation bump associated with it. So companies that, that raise money coming out of it, you, it's probably easier to raise money than it would be otherwise, and you get it at a higher valuation. But, but a lot of that is because they understand like the mentality of investors and they structure the whole demo day thing in a way that, that kind of makes them compete over you, mm-hmm. right? So like really flipping the tables again instead of you competing over them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly not, I mean, it really, really isn't uh, that if you get in, you're set. I think that's like a very short-sighted way of looking at it. There were a lot of companies in our batch that, that broke up before they even got to the end, wow. you know, founder, founder fights. Uh, there were companies that d- weren't able to raise money going out of it. There were companies that uh, ran out of money after it. Um, there were there's really like only a handful of companies in my batch that I can point to that were like very successful coming out of it. And then a lot of companies that sort of are like doing pretty all right. Some of them are going to go bankrupt. Some of them will probably end up being really successful. Mm-hmm. You know, it just improves the odds a little bit. Yeah. Well, sounds like just business in general, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we're getting close to an hour and I'm wondering how quickly we're going to be able to do this because I think this is a really interesting piece for for our listeners. I want to take this accelerated learning framework and see if we can boil it down uh, into learning any skill just sort of at a Mm -hmm. meta level. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll we'll definitely link up one month dot com and all your courses. But can you extract the overall framework for us um, that has led to the formation of one month and and really kind of is is at the core of how you do this? Yeah. um, So so part of the difficult thing when you're learning something new is that you don't really understand like the vastness of uh, of the entire body of knowledge. So it's hard for you to construct you know, like the order of what, of how to learn stuff or like what you should learn and what you shouldn't learn. That's where like good teachers really come in. Um, but I, I think if you can, uh, there's, that's that like whole skill of being an autodidact. Those are people who are actually really good at like researching new topics and, and figuring out what they should learn and what they shouldn't. Um, but I think a lot about, I think a lot about it as like kind of habit development and change development. And you have to, you have to make it easy for yourself to change something in your life, uh, I often actually like move to a totally different place when I'm learning something new. Because if you're trying to take any significant amount of time every day, like 30 minutes or an hour to do something a day, it's hard to fit that into a system that you already have set up. Like your body is, it tends to fight against you. It tends to want to just, you know, fall into the, the habits that you're used to, where instead of waking up early and practicing something, you kind of like, you hit snooze or you just, instead of staying up late, like you grab a beer with your friend. So that's like why I went to San Francisco or that's why I flew to Buenos Aires once for a month to work on a book because I didn't know anyone there and my body didn't have any of these like ingrained things. So first I, I try to tell people like if you want to change your behaviors when you're learning something new, change the environment around you a little bit to make it easier for yourself. Um, in terms of actually tackling a new topic, you want to think of like what's, what's actually useful and you don't want to necessarily come at it the way that it's been taught forever. Because the traditional approach is like bottom up and it's, it's meant to give you a really solid foundation in something, but it also assumes you're gonna be doing it for a long time, which you don't necessarily wanna do. I think most people, like, they, they get bored easily. Uh, the, you wanna find a project for yourself that you can actually use this thing on that's not too big, right? That's kind of one of the trickier parts where you could start applying this thing immediately, like from day one, and then just almost create like a list of, of things to tackle one at a time. And you don't know how you're going to start tackling those problems, but you just, you have to go start going down that list and, and, you know, really start solving the problems. And the learning kind of happens along the way, right? And that's kind of, that's how we construct the class is we just start on day one. Let's build this application. It's like, all right, well, how do I build an application. Mm-hmm. Okay, like then you learn that thing. And then you move on to the next step of what you want to do. And and not worrying so much about really full understanding. That comes with time and that comes with repetition. But getting a sense of the entire picture of, of where what you're trying to get to, um, it, it, it helps to identify like a bunch of resources that are, are good for beginners. But I think about it 
I, I came up with this term that I call brute force learning, which is about like surrounding yourself with all these resources and going through a lot of beginner tutorials really quickly without getting stuck in any one of them. Like if you don't understand one of the concepts and one of the ways that it's teaching you, then just like going forward through it and just, you know, having faith that the next time around, it'll make a little bit more sense. Because a, a lot of people, I think, get stuck because they really, you know, they have good intentions where they want to understand this topic before moving on, but then they get distracted or, or they never end up understanding it. And that's where people generally give up. Um, of course, it helps to find people who you can sort of fall back on if you end up being really frustrated and you can't move forward. But, you know, first starting to dive into like a new topic will help you find those people, whether it's through meetups or whether it's through like online groups. Um, you know, and, and then having those people kind of on speed dial for when you're like, uh, I really broke stuff and I've been trying for a while and I'm frustrated. Can you help? And, you know, at least in, in coding, yeah, there are a lot of people like that out there, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I think people, people think that they're going to have to learn all this stuff on their own, which isn't true. Well, this has been really, really fascinating, and uh, it's, it's been Thank really you. cool to get a view into uh, things that I've personally been very curious about, the Y Combinator experience, and uh, mm -hmm. I myself am now looking at, at some of your courses thinking, okay, there's there's <laughs> app ideas that I've been playing around that I'm like, I've no idea how to do for years, Yeah. Uh, so now I'm going to probably sit down with one of your courses and, and start dabbling with it. Uh, cool. But one final question for you, which is how we close all our interviews here at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it yeah. is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Man. Yeah, no, I know. I was anticipating that question and I didn't plan an answer yet. So let's see. What makes someone unmistakable? Um, I think it's something that like you feel different after talking to this person. You know, it, it, they change your perspective on your life, on your situation, on what you want to do. And, and for me, like the people that stand out that I've met uh, are people that you know, leave me either totally motivated to like learn something new or dive into a new area or give me a, a, a new perspective on something that like maybe I've been trying to tackle, but I haven't been able to do it. Uh, there are people who are, are just like super valuable. You know, they, they're, they're helping people around them all the time and, and they're sort of giving off value. Uh, that's kind of, I think in my life, if I can just continue to put value outwards and not worry so much about like myself and getting myself to the next level, that's when I find actually that things I'm much happier and things go much better for me, honestly, because people want to help people that want to help other people, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that um, makes plenty of sense. Yeah. Well, hey, Matan, uh, it has been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest uh, on The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, as I said, just an absolutely fascinating story. And we'll, we'll you, include links and resources to uh, some of their courses. By the way, for those of you guys who don't know, I have included this in our newsletter. Uh, uh, you guys are doing a 30-day writing challenge, right, to kick off the That's day. right. And yeah, I know that's something a that's Sarah created. A lot of people listening uh, actually have aspirations to write a book, and this is a really great way to get started. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. All right. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.